Section 32 of Lucretia Borgia by Ferdinand Gregorovius. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Emily Maynard. Book 2, Chapter 10, Effects of the War, The Roman Infante. The war about Ferrara, thanks to Alfonso's skill and the determined resistance of the state, had ended. Julius II had seized Modena and Reggio, which was a great loss to the state of Ferrara, and consequently the history of that country for many years hence is taken up with her efforts to regain these cities. Fortunately for Alfonso, Julius II died in February 1513, and Leo X ascended the papal throne. Hitherto he had maintained friendly relations with the princes of Urbino and Ferrara, who continued to look for only amicable treatment from him. But both houses were destined to be bitterly deceived by the faithless Medici, who deceived all the world. Alfonso hastened to attend Leo's coronation in Rome, and, believing a complete reconciliation with the Holy See would soon be effected, he returned to Ferrara. There Lucretia had won universal esteem and affection. She had become the mother of the people. She lent a ready ear to the suffering, and helped all who were in need. Famine, high prices, and depletion of the treasury were the consequences of the war. Lucretia had even pawned her jewels. She put aside, as Jovius says, quote, the pomps and vanities of the world to which she had been accustomed from childhood, and gave herself up to pious works, and founded convents and hospitals. This was due as much to her own nature as it was to her past life and the fate she had suffered. Most women who have lived much and loved much finally become fanatics. Bigotry is often only the last form which feminine vanity assumes. The recollection of a world of vice and of crimes committed by her nearest kinsmen, and also of her own sins, must have constantly disturbed Lucretia's conscience. Other women who, like her, were among the chief characters in the history of the Borgias, developed precisely the same frame of mind, and experienced a similar need of religious consolation. Caesar's widow ended her life in a convent. Gandius did the same. Alexander's mistress became a fanatic, and if we had any record of the adulteress Giulia Farnese, we should certainly find that she passed the closing years of her life either as a saint in a convent or engaged in pious works. The year 1513, following the war in Ferrara, marked a decided change in Lucretia's life, for from that time it took a special religious turn. It did not, however, degenerate into bigotry or fanaticism. This was prevented by the vigorous Alfonso and her children, and by her court duties. The war had deprived Ferrara of much of its brilliancy, although it was still one of the most attractive of the princely courts of Italy. During the following years of peace, Alfonso devoted himself to the cultivation of the arts. The most famous masters of Ferrara, Dossi, Garofalo, and Michele Costa, worked for him in the castle, in Belriguardo and Belfiore. Titian, who was frequently a guest in Ferrara, executed some paintings for him, and the Duke likewise gave Raphael some commissions. He even found a museum of antiquities. In Lucretia's cabinet there was a Cupid by Michelangelo. The predilection of the Duchess for the fine arts, however, was not very strong. In this respect she was not to be compared with her sister-in-law, Isabella of Mantua, who maintained constant relations with all the prominent artists of the age, and had her agents in all the large cities of Italy to keep her informed regarding noteworthy productions in the domain of the arts. 
From 1513, Ferrara's brilliancy was somewhat dimmed by the greater fame of the court of Leo X. The passion of this member of the Medici family for the arts attracted to Rome the most brilliant men of Italy, among whom were the poets Tebaldeo, Saldoletto, and Bembo, the last becoming Leo's secretary. Both the Strozzi were dead. Aldo, upon whose career as a printer and scholar during his early years Lucretia had not been without influence, was living in Venice, and from there he kept up a literary correspondence with his patroness. Celio Calcagnini remained true to Ferrara. The university continued to flourish. Lucretia was very friendly with the noble Venetian Tresino, Ariosto's not altogether successful rival in epic poetry. There are in existence five letters written by Tresino to Lucretia in her last years. Ferrara's pride, however, was Ariosto, and Lucretia knew him when he was at the zenith of his fame. He, however, dedicated his poem neither to her nor to Alfonso, but to the unworthy Cardinal Ippolito, in whose service a combination of circumstances had placed him. No princely house was ever glorified more highly than was the house of Este by Ariosto, for the Orlando Furioso will cause it to be remembered for all time. So long as the Italian language endures, it will hold an immortal place in literature. Lucretia, too, was given a position of honor in the poem, but however beautiful the place which she there holds, Ariosto ought to have bestowed greater praise on her if she was the inspiration which he required for his great work. Lucretia's relations with her husband, which had never been based upon love and which were not of a passionate nature, apparently continued to grow more favorable for her. In April 1514 she had borne him a third son, Alessandro, who died at the age of two years. July 4, 1515, she bore a daughter, Leonora, and November 1, 1516, another son, Francesco. With no little satisfaction, Alfonso found himself the father of a number of children, all his legitimate heirs. He was engrossed in his own affairs, but nevertheless he was highly pleased with the esteem and admiration now bestowed upon his wife. While the admiration she excited in former years was due to her youthful beauty, it was now owing to her virtues. She, who was once the most execrated woman of her age, had won a place of the highest honor. Caviceo even ventured, when he wished to praise the famous Isabella Gonzaga, to say that she approached the perfection of Lucretia. Her past, apparently, was so completely forgotten that even her name, Borgia, was always mentioned with respect. About this time Lucretia was reminded of her life in Rome by a member of her family who was very near to her, Giovanni Borgia, the mysterious Infante of Rome, formerly Duke of Nepi and Camerino, and companion in destiny of the little Rodrigo, who died in Bari. He had disappeared from the stage in 1508, and where he was during several succeeding years we do not know. But in 1517, a young man of nineteen or twenty, he came from Naples to Romagna, where he was shipwrecked. His baggage had been saved by the commune of Pesaro, and was claimed by a representative of Lucretia, December 2nd. In the legal document, Giovanni Borgia was described as her, quote, brother. Other instruments show that he remained at his sister's court as late as December 1517. Her husband, therefore, did not refuse to allow her to shelter her kinsman. In December 1518, Don Giovanni went to France, where the Duke Alfonso had him presented to the king. Lucretia had given him presents to take to the king and queen. 
He remained at the French court some time for the purpose of making his fortune, in which, however, he did not succeed. Thereupon the Infante of Rome again disappeared from view until the year 1530, when we find him in Rome laying claim to the Duchy of Camerino. The last Verano, Giamaria, had returned thither on Caesar's overthrow, and had been recognized by Julius II as a vassal of the Church. In April 1515, Leo X made him Duke of Camerino and married him to his own niece, the beautiful Caterino Cibot. Giamaria died in August 1527, leaving as his sole heir his daughter Giulia, who was not yet of age. An illegitimate son of the house of Varano laid claim to Camerino, and he was ready to enforce his demands with arms, but he was frustrated in his attempt by a suit brought by Giovanni Borgia, the first duke, who was supported by Alfonso of Ferrara in his efforts. He furnished him with several documents dating from the time of Alexander the Sixth, which referred to his rights to Camerino, and which had been placed by Lucretia in the Chancellery of the House of Este. Don Giovanni had even gone to Charles V in Bologna, where the famous Congress had been sitting since December 1529. The Emperor had advised him to endeavor to secure his rights by process of law in Rome through the Pope. From that city, in 1530, the Infante wrote a letter to Duke Alfonso, in which he informed him of his affairs, and asked him to have further search made in the archives of the Este for documents concerning himself. Don Giovanni began suit. In a voluminous document, dated June 29, 1530, he describes himself not only as Domicellus Romanus Principalis, but also as, quote, orator of the Pope. From this it appears that he, one of the illegitimate sons of Alexander the Sixth, was a prominent gentleman in Rome, and was even in the Pope's service. The Roman Rota decided the suit against Giovanni, who had to pay the costs. In a brief dated June 7, 1532, Clement VII commanded him to cease annoying Giulia Verano and her mother with any further claims. From that time we hear nothing more of this Borgia, except from a letter written in Rome, November 19, 1547, apparently by a Ferrarese agent to Ercole II, then reigning duke. In it he mentions the death of Don Giovanni. The letter is as follows. Don Giovanni Borgia has just died in Genoa. It is said he left many thousand ducats in Valencia. Here, in Rome, he had a little clothing, two horses, and a vineyard worth about three hundred ducats. As he left no will, the property will be divided between your excellency, your brothers, and among others, the nobles of the Matei family here, the Duke of Gandia, and the children of the Duke of Valentino, provided their rights are not prejudiced by the fact that they are natural children. I will not omit to inform myself regarding the money in Valencia, and will report to your excellency. End of chapter 10